Well, I, uh, I love a good road trip. I love being with some people that I enjoy and going somewhere that we are excited to be at together. And uh, last month, several of us on staff took a road trip to California together. We all piled in an SUV and we drove to San Diego. We had great sushi, learned a lot at a conference. Uh, Whenever whenever I've driven to like LA or San Diego from Prescott, there's a spot I always want to stop at. And I just, I had friends, so we decided to stop there. So this is Paul and I, we stopped in Hope, Arizona, you know, you're, you're now beyond hope. I've always wanted to take that photo before, so we, uh, we took that selfie. You know, Clovis almost drove off and left us, you know, but uh, we flagged him down and we weren't stuck there. It would have been a long walk back to Prescott from there. But I just love, I love being on a good road trip and I love the conversations that it creates and the relationships that it builds. And, and then what I want you to do today is I, I want you to think about with me uh, a road trip. Actually, I want everybody here just to close your eyes right now. And I want you to imagine that you are going on a road trip, we'll just say to San Diego, about seven hours. And um, I want you to imagine that you're in a car with four seats, and you can pick the three people you want to be on this trip with you. Okay, so I want you to pick the three people that are on this trip with you. Anybody you want that's alive can be on this trip. Okay, there's four of you in this car. And before you open your eyes, I want you to think about which seat you're in. Are you in the driver's seat? Are you in the passenger seat? Or are you just along for the ride in the back? Okay? So before you open your eyes, who's in the car with you? Have that in your mind. And which seat are you in? Okay. Open your eyes. Now, how many of you picked the driver's seat? How many of you are driving? Okay. Now, you're the people who kind of, you know, you may, maybe you like to be in control. Maybe you like to have the steering wheel. Maybe everybody else drives too slow for you, you know. Um, but you're in the driver's seat. How many of you are in the passenger seat up front? Okay. And, and maybe you're the person who likes to make sure you actually get where you're designed to go. You kind of drive the GPS or maybe you make sure that there's actually good music playing on the radio. And then how many of you are, are just back in the back and you're along for the ride? Okay. You know, and this may be a little bit of a personality test um, here. Um, but, but what's so funny about road trips is it kind of brings out the truth of who we are and our personalities. And, and one of the things that, that I often find when I go on a trip with somebody is I learn a lot about them, especially how they handle things that don't go according to plan. And, and one of the symbols that we have in our culture uh, of, of control is, is this steering wheel right here. And I actually, I actually brought one with me this morning. Um, you know, I tend to be the kind of person I want to be in the driver's seat. Um, and that's because I like to be in control. You know, I like to be the one deciding where we're going and how fast we're going and the route that we're going to take to get there. You know, there's a reason that Carrie Underwood wrote the song, Jesus Take the Wheel, because she was capitalizing on this cultural reference that we have that, that many of us struggle with control. We want to be in control. We want to be in the driver's seat. And, and, if, and if the steering wheel isn't an issue for you, then maybe, maybe this one is. How about, how about the phone? You know, um, for me, if I'm ever in a situation where I'm not in control, I pull my phone out and I feel a little bit more in control. 
Or maybe when you leave your, your phone at home, it's happened to me a couple times. My wife loves it when I forget this at home. She thinks it's just like comedy hour, you know? Um, she's like, how many twitches is that so far, you know? And, and so some of us, we just don't feel like we're in power or control if we don't have this phone attached to us. Years and years ago, a device was introduced into our homes, which created a sense of control, and it was literally called the remote control. Uh, some of you grew up in the era where you were the remote control for your parents, and they sent you to go change the channel. Um, I remember I grew up in that era. We had a JCPenney's TV that turned the knobs, and I was the remote control. But, but how many times have you been in somebody's house, and, they, and you don't have the remote? And so you're stuck watching something you don't want to be watching. Um, And then many times in our families, the symbol of control is this. And whoever controls this, controls everything. Sometimes in unhealthy relationships, this becomes the tool for control. And it's not necessarily a bad thing to have power or have control. But when those things become barriers or roadblocks to what God wants to accomplish in you or in a a relationship you're in or in your family or in your job or even in a church, that's when the wheels begin to fall off. Today, we're wrapping up a series called Like Jesus. And we've been looking at this challenging season in the life of Jesus where he was tempted in the desert for 40 days and 40 nights after fasting. And we've been looking at these temptations that he faced and seeing that that there's some remarkable similarity between the temptations that he faced and the temptations that we face. And we've been learning that being like Jesus isn't just admiring him from afar. It's beginning to walk the path that he walked. It's doing the things that he did. In the first week, we covered the temptation to be relevant. And we said that for many of us, we define our worth and value by how relevant or useful we feel rather than what God says about us. Last week we discussed that that there's a temptation to be spectacular, to to do things and to take actions that bring us a sense of attention, that that make the the focus on us. And we said that, that becoming like Jesus isn't about being spectacular, it's about learning to faithfully serve. And then today we're going to bring this series to a close with the third and final temptation, and that's the temptation to be powerful. And if you have your handout, when you walked in, you got a bulletin, there's a handout, there's a place to to take notes, and this is the big idea that we'll close the series with today. That becoming like Jesus means exchanging a life of power and control for a life of surrender and trust. Becoming like Jesus means exchanging a life of power and control for a life of surrender and trust. And and if you are somebody who at some point in the past or even today has wrestled with, I want to feel powerful, I want to feel in control, then, then there may come a moment as you follow Jesus where he calls you to lay that down. He calls you to surrender that. And we're going to see that this morning in our text, which, as it's been for the whole series, is Matthew chapter 4. So if you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to open up to Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. We're going to be primarily in verses 8 through 11, but we're going to read the entire text today. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, Matthew is about three-quarters of the way through. It's after Malachi and before Mark. And while you're turning there, I want to give you a heads up that next week we start a new series. And again, it's kind of just a shorter series as we head towards Christmas. And the series is called The Gratitude Muscle. And, and this is a season, Dave even referred to it, where we often think about being grateful, 
But if you're only grateful for one month out of the year, it will never change your life. Because what is so often happens in our lives is when we only choose to be grateful when we feel like it, we don't actually build that muscle. And I know this because our culture experiences this every year. In November, we celebrate how grateful we are, and then at 6 p.m. on Thanksgiving, we celebrate our greed. Even in the way that commercialism is creeping in on Thanksgiving, the only pure holiday we have left, greed is hedging out gratitude. And the subtitle of the series is How Exercising Your Gratitude Muscle Can Transform Your Life with God and Others. And so we're talking about what would happen if we weren't grateful when we felt like it, or we weren't just grateful in November. What would happen if we were grateful all year long? Because long before gratitude was a cultural trend, it's a biblical reality. And so we'll start talking about that next Sunday. So if you're in Matthew 4 by now, I'd encourage you to stand up, and we're going to read together from God's Word, honor His Word and the place in our lives, and then we're going to dive into this text. Beginning in verse 1, this is what the text says, and this is familiar for those of you who've been here. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus answered, saying, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him, Jesus, to the holy city, Jerusalem, set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and on their hands, they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to Satan a second time, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. That was last week. Now this is new stuff. Again, the devil took Jesus to a very high mountain and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And Satan said to Jesus, all of these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, the angels came and were ministering to him. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would not only speak through this text to us today, but in the place where we are the barrier to us becoming like Jesus. We pray that you would bring us clarity, that you would bring us conviction, and that you would bring the change that only you can. In your son Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. In this text, specifically verses 8 through 11, I think that we learn a little bit about power and control and the way we're tempted by it. And I don't presume that all of us wrestle with this temptation equally. Some of you might say, I'm not really you know, tempted or struggle with power and control. That's fine. But there are three particular moments in all of our lives, regardless of our personality, where we are tempted specifically to power and control. So please don't check out because you're like, I'm in the backseat, I'm along for the ride, Scott. This isn't for me. No, in these moments, even if you're not somebody who struggles with power and control, you'll be tempted to power and control. And here's the first moment when we're proud and self-centered. When we are proud and self-centered, we are tempted to control. 
And, and often what happens is we build up a sense of confidence in ourselves that we can handle something or that we are strong in some area. And so as a result, we are tempted to just hold on to that power and control and put our faith in that power and control. There's a reason that all throughout the Bible there are warnings about the danger of pride. In the Proverbs it says, pride goes before the fall. Jesus, speaking through Peter in 1 Peter 5, says that God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. And that those who won't humble themselves, God will humble. And those who humble themselves, God will exalt. And for many of us, the struggle is that we often think about those temptations that are on the outside and we're guarded against those. We think about those external temptations. And if some of you in the room today, if you're a a short-term follower of Jesus, you've not been following him for a long time, you may be severely tempted by those notorious sins. Those sins like, like losing control of your inhibitions or losing control of... Your, uh, your sexuality or losing control of your mouth or, or not managing money well or those things that are very easy to see. But what is so often true is that in our lives we follow Jesus, the temptation kind of moves inward. And some of you who've been following Jesus for a long time, your most dangerous temptations, your most besetting sins are not external sins. They're, they're internal sins. And many times the most judgmental people in the church are the people who have the most hard to see sins. The people who feel the judge the most are the people whose sins are available for everybody to see. We see this in the Bible, even the disciples of Jesus. They're people who are judged because they're notorious sinners. They're a drunkard or they're a prostitute. And yet those who are judging them have their own sin problems. They're just harder to see. And we're tempted to power and control when we are proud and self-centered. And what Satan's doing in this passage is the same thing he does with Adam and Eve and the same thing he does with us. He starts with the outside and then he moves inside. I stumbled on a chart this week. Some of you love charts and so here's your jam for the day. Um, I found this chart about the progression of Satan's temptations of Eve and Jesus and I think we can see some of ourselves in this. The first temptation from week one is this temptation of appetite or relevance. To Eve, it's you may eat of any tree. To Jesus, it's you may eat by changing stones of bread. It's this external thing. It's this very simple, superficial thing. It's eating food. It's, it's showing your, your relevance and usefulness. But then it goes one level deeper into the spectacular. He says to Eve, you will not die if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. To Jesus, he says, you won't harm your foot. You'll do this spectacular thing. People will admire you. And then he goes one level deeper. He goes to power and control. To Eve, he says, you will be like God And to Jesus, he says, you will rule the world's kingdoms. This is what Satan does. He starts on the edge and he moves inward. And if you've been following Jesus for 5, 10, 15, 20 years, the temptations that you're most vulnerable to are not those, those very easy to see sins. You go, Scott, I'm not tempted by drugs and alcohol anymore. No, yeah, you've moved beyond that. Now you're tempted with self-righteousness, judgmentalism, pride, ego, control, that no one can see from the outside, but they can take you out just the same. And this is why Jesus is so remarkable, what he does in the face of an opportunity to be proud or self-centered. 
Paul describes this in Philippians 2. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. See, Jesus had every reason to be self-centered. I mean, he was the greatest. He had every reason to have pride in himself because he had a reason to be confident. And yet, he emptied himself of those things and he humbled himself, which is why the temptation to power and control didn't touch him. And he recognized that this temptation wasn't coming for his body. It was coming for his soul. And this is why you have to recognize that sometimes the greatest temptations are like icebergs. They don't appear to be dangerous on the surface. But below the surface, they can take you out. And there are many of us who are like the passengers on the Titanic. We think we're unsinkable. We think we're undefeatable. We think that there's no way that we could be taken out. And yet if you are in that place, you are in danger of being taken out. We're vulnerable to the temptation to power and control when we're proud and self-centered. The second temptation, second moment where we're vulnerable to this temptation especially, is when we're feeling vulnerable and threatened. We're tempted by power and control when we feel vulnerable and threatened. You see, it's in those moments when, when we don't want anyone to get close to us, when we don't want anyone to know us, that we feel tempted to push people away so we'll feel powerful and so we'll feel in control. I mean, Jesus in the moment has been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. I mean, at that point, like, I mean, if I hadn't had food for 40 days and 40 nights, I don't even know what would come out of me, you know? I would have felt very vulnerable. I wouldn't have wanted anything I did or said to be recorded. I would have wanted nobody to be around. I would have felt vulnerable. And for many of us, we are terrified of vulnerability, we're terrified of people knowing the truth about who we are. We're terrified of really being known. And Henry Nowen, who's a writer who's influenced the series in a big way, he says this, he says, the temptation to power is greatest when intimacy is perceived as a threat. We're tempted to grab a hold of power when we think somebody really knowing us and us being transparent with them and nobody, them, that's what intimacy is. It's, it's that real knowledge. When we perceive that as a threat, man, we're going to grab for power all we can. This is one of the reasons why even in your most personal relationships, many times you, you, you wall up. You shields up. You, you back away. You, you, you try to get back in control when you feel exposed. Because you think that's a threat. You think if that person really knew you, man, you would be in danger. And this is why for many of us, we're terrified of the word intimacy. And please get me, let me be clear, I'm not using that word as a substitute word for sex. I'm using it in the broadest sense. There are many of us that are terrified of really being known. And so as a result, we like to stay powerful and in control. 
It's the reason why some of you, whenever you go to an event, you always drive yourself. So you can leave whenever you feel scared. It's one of the reasons why sometimes you, you, you don't shift from being in rows here on Sunday to being in circles in somebody's home. Because it's just too vulnerable. And you've come to realize what I've come to realize. That it's easier to control people than it is to love people. Because when you love someone, you're giving them control. And you're losing some of that yourself. See, what Jesus does again and again is he chooses to put himself in a vulnerable position. He chooses to put himself not in the position of power and control. No, he empties himself of that and he comes in a place that is vulnerable. And there's some of you, when you hear that word vulnerability, you go in one of two directions. When you hear the word vulnerability, some of you go down the road of shame and pain. And some of you move down the road of connection and intimacy. If you hear the word vulnerability and you're scared of it, then you will run from it. But that will lead you down the place of shame and pain. You'll begin to tell yourself all the reasons why no one who they ever really knew you would love you. You go back into all the times when you were vulnerable, that you were hurt. And that will drive you further and further away from the relationships that you want. But the relationships that you really want are actually on the other side of vulnerability. You have to go through it. And you go, Scott, I could get hurt. Absolutely. That's the only way to true connection. You have to risk rejection to get connection. I hate that. Let's be honest. It sucks. I wish it was different. I wish there was four or five different routes. You know, my GPS would send me to not go through vulnerability, but that's the only way. And, and, and it isn't just our struggle. If you go, man, vulnerability is not easy for me. You are not alone. All throughout this book, we have a story of a people who have a struggle with vulnerability and intimacy. Let me just give you some examples here. All throughout the Old Testament, Egypt functions as this symbol of the people's problem with vulnerability. Whenever the people leave Egypt as, as slaves, they are constantly tempted to go back to Egypt where it feels safe. Even after leaving, they're in the desert. They go, let's go back to Egypt. I know we were slaves, but at least we had good food. And all throughout the Old Testament, when a foreign country attacks the people of Israel, instead of depending on God, what do they do? They run and make an alliance with Egypt. In the, in, the, in the book of 1 Samuel, the people say to God, we don't want to be led by you, we want a king. It's because they didn't want the vulnerability intimacy that came from being led by God. And then whenever, when you get into the latter half of the Old Testament, whenever the people are threatened, instead of turning to God, they turn to an idol. Because it makes them feel safe. It makes them feel secure. And, and, and you and I have things that we turn to to depend on when we feel vulnerable. And often that is power and control because many of us wrestle with what is now known today as imposter syndrome. Many of us feel like that little kid. We feel like a, a child in a grown-up's body. We feel like we're a total fake. And we're just waiting for somebody to figure out how much of a fake we are. You're like, I don't know what I'm doing. I, I, I used to think when I was a kid that grown-ups all knew what they were doing, and now I know the truth. <laughs> we're just making it up as we go along. And so what happens is if you're somebody who wrestles with imposter syndrome, you hear this little voice whisper in your ear that says, stay in power, stay in control, don't let them see you sweat, 
Don't get too close to people. Don't let anybody in. Don't be vulnerable. Even with your spouse. Even with your closest friends. This is one thing that I'm working through right now, even in counseling. Because even though we've been married for 11 years, there are things that my wife and I just haven't talked about. We haven't pressed into. Because it's scary to be vulnerable. But on the other side of that vulnerability, those conversations that, that I certainly haven't been willing to have is the relationship that we want. And I can stay powerful and in control, but I'll never get to where I want us to be. And this is one of the reasons we bang the drum of community groups so hard at Cornerstone. Because this is great, and you need this. But this is not vulnerability. At least not for you. It isn't until you shift from a, a row to a circle, you move to somebody's living room, somebody can look across from you and ask you a question. That's where vulnerability happens, and that's why some of you guys have resisted it. I get it. Maybe you came in from another church and you're, you're hurt, you're wounded, you're wrestling through that. But I'm just going to tell you, the temptation to power and control will always be greatest in that place where God is leading you and calling you to be vulnerable. And you can stay in power and stay in control. But that will be the stumbling block to what God wants to do. And becoming like Jesus means exchanging a life of power and control for a life of surrender and trust. The third moment when we're especially tempted to power and control is when we're afraid of or wanting to avoid a difficult path. When we're afraid of or wanting to avoid a difficult path, we're tempted to grab a hold of power and control. In, in, the, in the moment Jesus has with Satan, one of the things we have to recognize is that Satan is a powerful person. He does have power. And that power is given to him by God. It's recognized in Ephesians chapter 2, where Paul says to the, to the Christians in Ephesians, he says, you were dead in the trespasses and the sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. That's Satan. And he has power in the world. And so he tempts Jesus and says, hey, Jesus, I will give you what you came for, power in this world. And I will give it to you without you having to go to the cross. It's a shortcut. Because Jesus doesn't want to go to the cross. We see that he's struggling with that. In the, in the Garden of Gethsemane, in his final hours, he literally sweats blood because the anxiety and the stress and the struggle over going to the cross was so overwhelming. And he didn't want to go to the cross. He knew what it, would, what it would call it. So there were moments of struggle. And for many of us, when we think of the cross, we think of this. We think of the hallmark version of the cross with pastel sunsets. And that's because we see the cross from this side. All that it accomplished, all that it did. But from the side that Jesus was on in Matthew chapter 4, this wasn't his view of the cross. This one was. It wasn't light, it was dark. It wasn't joy, it was pain. It was going to be a struggle. It wasn't just going to be singing angels and, you know, victory. 
it was going to be beaten within an inch of his life, stripped down naked, his, his lungs filling up with fluid, not a sanded cross, but a splintery cross. And Satan goes, you can skip that, Jesus. That hard path you didn't want to walk, here's the shortcut to you getting what you want. But here's the thing. Jesus would not have been king without the cross. He might have had some power, but he wouldn't have been king. And he rejects the temptation to power and control because he knows the goal isn't power. The goal is for him to become king. And it's only through the cross that that's going to happen. And if you and I are going to be like Jesus, we have to reckon with the fact that we're going to have a cross too. Because we cannot become like Jesus without the cross. There's just no other way. And if there is a way that you're tempted to become like Jesus without the cross, it's your moment with Satan on top of the world. It's your moment of temptation. I love what J.C. Ryle says, a cheap Christianity without a cross will prove in the end to be a useless Christianity without a crown. Many of us want that moment where we stand before our Heavenly Father and he says, well done, good and faithful servant, and we receive a crown and riches and blessing and reward. Guess what? The only way you get that is through the cross. And you and I are tempted in the same way Jesus was to shortcut and go around that, to skip that, to compromise. And we cannot accomplish the will of God via compromise. When you are in the middle of something God is doing, there will always be a moment before you get there where you'll be tempted to compromise. Because Satan knows that if you do God's plan in your way and your timing, it won't lead to where God wants. It's God's plan, it's God's way, and it's God's timing. That's why a lot of us get frustrated, because God's timing is not our timing. And we'll be tempted to compromise. This is why Jesus says, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. You don't serve yourself. You don't serve your own securities. You don't serve your own needs. Jesus says here in Matthew 4, quoting Deuteronomy 10, that you shall fear the Lord and you shall serve him and hold fast to him. And by his name, you shall swear. He says, you follow him. You do things his way. This is why Jesus later on said to his disciples, where does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? Because he'd been there. He had the opportunity to gain the world's power and lose his soul. And he chose not to. How? By surrendering. And so I don't know what it is for you. I don't know if it's, um, you always have to be in the driver's seat. You always have to have control. I don't know if it's uh, the things that you turn to when you feel exposed I don't know if it's you always have to be the one who's making the decisions or I don't know if it's the fact that you're the one who has the money and so you feel like you have power. But whatever whatever your symbol is, the invitation that Jesus is calling you to is to, is to lay it down. 
He goes, Scott, that makes me feel naked. That's the point. I feel exposed. That's the point. I feel vulnerable. That's the point. I have to trust. That's the point. He's trying to lead you away from power and control so that you are known by him, so that you will be loved by him, so that you will trust and depend on him, not yourself. Because until you come to that cross moment, you're not like Jesus. And you can only be loved to the extent that you're known. And until you're ready to lay that all down and open that all up, you won't fully experience the love that God has for you. On the back of your handout, there's some next steps that I want to draw your attention to. And they're simple today. The first one is stop. Stop. Because for many of us, these symbols are signs of how fast our life moves. And at the speed at which we're living. And the scriptures remind us in Psalm 46 that we need to be still and know that I'm God. The literal meaning of the word that's be still in Hebrew is cease striving. It's only when you surrender. It's only when you let go. It's only when you stop your driving and control that you know that he is God. And this is why, because we cannot be like Jesus until we're actually dwelling in his presence. Until you're stopping and being with him, you won't be like him. And if the only hour that you're consciously aware of God's presence and connected to him is this hour, you won't be like him. You have to be with him. And not all of us get the privilege of just spending 24-7 with Jesus. I mean, but if you're going to be like somebody, you've got to be with them. You've got to dwell in his presence. I'm keeping these simple. Number two, listen. Stop and listen. For many of us, our symbols are the signs of, of how our life drowns out the voice of God. Hours watching TV, hours listening to you and consuming this. Most of us, if you have an iPhone, you get an alert every Sunday morning during church. It's called your weekly screen time update. I got mine about 45 minutes ago. And it tells you how much you're on this phone every week if you turn it on. It's a little bit convicting and you're already at church. So just if you want some conviction, set it up. Um, <laughs> but you have to listen. And in 1 Kings Elijah has an encounter with God that I think is insightful to us. God says to him, go out, Elijah, and stand in the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great strong wind tore through the mountains. And broken into pieces were the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord wasn't in the wind. And after the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord wasn't in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, there was a fire, but the Lord wasn't in the fire. And after the fire, there was the sound of a low whisper. And that's the sound of God. Our agendas tend to shout while God's voice whispers. God's not going to shout over your phone. He's not going to shout over your TV. He's not going to shout over your loud, loud life. If you want to hear from him, you're going to have to quiet down and listen. And what you may find is what I found is that he's been speaking all along. I just haven't been quiet enough to listen. And then number three is surrender. Surrender. Three and a half years ago, I felt more out of control than I'd ever been in my life. I was moving to Prescott. 
somewhere I'd never lived before, for a job I never had before, with more responsibility than I've known before. And I felt so out of control. I felt like I had no power. It's the first time I bowed anxiety in my life. It's the first time I really felt uh, exposed. And again and again, what God did is he gave me an opportunity where I had to stop. He was speaking and I finally got quiet enough to listen. And he said, Scott, I'm trying to do something if you'll let go of the wheel. If you'll put it down. It wasn't the most fun season. I'll just be honest about that. But I knew God in the fresh way that I wanted. And I felt things happening in me that I'd always wanted. And it only happened when I stopped and I listened and I surrendered. And that's what I want for you. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to the audio from Cornerstone Church in Prescott, Arizona. For more information, visit us online at www.prescottcornerstone.com.